It was a uh, it was a crazy crime in the 70s and uh, one that most people now have never even heard about. That was Miami Herald reporter David Ovalle talking about the murders committed by Thomas Knight, who sat on death row for the better part of 40 years until his execution in 2014. That dark story and more are coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look into Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the strange and disturbing attack of a disabled man in Daytona Beach. The man is a fixture on the beach side. He dresses up in costumes and takes photos with children. But one day last week, he was beaten by a man who police say is trying to boost his own social media profile. Later, I'll discuss the criminal life of Thomas Knight, a man who in 1974 held a wealthy couple hostage, ordered them to withdraw money from a bank, and while the FBI was on his tail took the couple to a secluded area in South Florida and fatally shot them. Even after he was arrested, Knight went on to commit two more shocking murders. My special guest for that segment will be Miami Herald reporter David Ovalle. Coming up, the story of a man who was charged in the killing of a woman in Orange City while in a jail in the Blue Ridge Mountains. A man arrested in Carroll County is suspected of killing a woman in Florida. Officers in Hillsville took Matthew Barber into custody after a chase on Saturday. The 39-year-old faces multiple gun and reckless driving charges. According to police, Barber made statements to staff at the New River Valley Jail suggesting that he harmed a woman. He said it happened in Orange City, which is between Orlando and Daytona Beach. That was a clip from a segment from WSLS News Channel 10, an NBC affiliate in Roanoke, Virginia. The broadcaster was talking about the arrest of 49-year-old Matthew Barber of Orange City. On Tuesday, police from Hillsville, located in Carroll County, Virginia, called Orange City police to check on 58-year-old Hilda Bailey. Barber, authorities in Virginia said, openly admitted that he had harmed Bailey. Orange City Police found Bailey's body. It appeared she had been stabbed several times. Lieutenant Jason Samsel, a spokesman with the Orange City Police Department, told the News Journal that Barber wanted to get caught. He said Barber practically gave a full confession while being housed in the New River Valley Jail in Dublin, Virginia. Bailey's body was discovered around 5 p.m. Tuesday at her home at 2555 Enterprise Drive in the Ocean City Flats subdivision. First, there was a knock at the door, but there was no answer. Based on the information provided by Hillsville Police, Local police forcibly entered the home and found Bailey lying in the hallway. No one else was inside. 
Orange City detectives plan to travel to Hillsville to talk to Barber. As of late last week, he remained in custody without bail in Virginia. Barber, police said, was Bailey's neighbor. The Roanoke station included this short interview from another Orange City Flats neighbor. She was not identified in the piece. He's a distant person, you know, because he's my neighbor and I talk to him every day and with his mother too. I can't believe it. Police indicated to the News Journal that Barber's possible motive to killing Bailey was to take her car. But detectives said they are still looking into that. Bailey was pulled over by authorities in Virginia while driving the victim's vehicle. According to reports, Hillsville police stopped Barber last Monday evening for speeding and passing other vehicles. He did this while having his headlights off along Interstate 77. After Barber was stopped, according to reports, police could smell alcohol on him. They also found a firearm underneath a hat on the passenger seat. After a police officer confiscated the gun, Barber took off, which instigated a pursuit. Based on reports from the Hillsville police, Barber came to a stop again and was holding a knife. He was ordered to drop it and complied. That's when he spontaneously told one of the arresting officers that he was wanted for murder in Florida. Hillsville police charged Barber with DUI, carrying a concealed weapon, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, hit and run, reckless driving, disregarding police commands, vandalism, and obstruction of justice. Barber reportedly told a nurse at the jail that he had committed murder in Florida. He was later interviewed by detectives, and he began by being forthcoming about what he had done. But all of a sudden, he stopped being cooperative. He told police that he would rather wait for detectives from Florida before talking further. Coming up, the story of a man in a minion suit who was allegedly roughed up by another man who swore to police he only did it for fun. Where's your ID? My ID's in the car, sir. I haven't done anything wrong. I was talking to the dude. They all In that case, me. turn around. Yes, sir. I apologize for any inconvenience. Those who make regular trips to Main Street on beachside Daytona Beach have probably seen Jamie Rome. He is usually standing outside the Jungle George's store, dressed in a minion suit, having his picture taken with children. The man you just heard in that clip getting handcuffed and apologizing is accused of attacking Rome, kicking him in the groin and face, and tackling him to the ground. The 40-year-old Rome takes the job he has very seriously, and he has fun with it. He is friendly with kids. He waves to everyone. He dances to songs played on the strip. Rome is partially blind and mentally disabled. His brother, who works at Jungle George's, an airbrush and gift store, helped land him the job. Rome has worked there for more than a year. About a week ago, a man walked up to Rome. He was accompanied by his girlfriend and a male friend. The latter had his smartphone out, recording the conversation. 
The man talking to Rome identified in police reports as Ryan Nyhart asked him whether he would like to wrestle. Rome shook his head. That was evident in the video captured from the camera inside the store, which police released to the media last week. Moments after Rome shook his head, Nyhart lifted him up and started spinning him around. This according to police. The video shows Rome in his minion costume getting spun around four times. Rome gets dropped on his feet and starts leaning against a tree, at which time the suspect starts kicking him from behind. He strikes him in the groin and in the face. Rome gets taken to the ground seconds later. Rome gets back on his feet and the suspect crouches down and goes for his legs. That's when a co-worker bursts out of the store and takes down the assailant. He and another man, the owner of the Jungle Georges, pinned Nyhart to the ground until police showed up about two minutes later. While interviewed by police, the suspect said he was an Instagram star who goes by the name Bouge Rache. He said he was only playing a prank on the guy in the minion suit. His goal, he said, was to entertain his growing audience on Instagram. The suspect has more than 1,800 followers on the social media platform. The 25-year-old Nyhart, who lives in Citrus County, was jailed on charges of battery and criminal mischief. He was released from the Volusia County Jail on his own recognizance. Rome declined medical attention at the scene. His boss said he was shaken up mentally and was fearful that he might lose his job. But his boss assured him that his job was safe. Rome spoke to me last week about the incident. He told me he wasn't about to cut his accused attacker any slack, in spite of his insistence that it was all a prank. No, it's not funny. It is not funny at all. It shouldn't happen, especially on a Sunday. It shouldn't happen. It, I was, I was, I'm angry, but I'm, I'm not angry to the point I can't do my job. I love this job, and I'll do this job to the best of my ability. And he is not going to scare me. Nyhart filmed an apology video and posted it on his Facebook page. It has since been taken down. In it, he said, quote, I am so sorry. I apologize to anybody that I offended or anybody that I will offend. But now I am on the news for something that was a big misunderstanding. I really was trying to make a funny video. Nyhart declined my request for an interview. He said he had to check with his manager first. He never got back to me afterward. Rome has since returned to work. Here he is again telling me why he loves doing what he does. Going out and entertaining the little kids, seeing the smiles on families when they come visit me, when they come get the picture taken with me, when they dance with me. It's, it's awesome. It's the awesomest job ever, I think. Out of all the jobs I've had, this is the most coolest job I've ever had. Who else can you say, hey, Manny, I walk down by the beach and I, I can get the ocean, I can get the beach air and I can dance to music when I'm walking? It's, it's pretty fun. I love it, man. Coming up, 
the story of convicted killer Thomas Knight, who murdered four people during a six-year span that stretched from Miami to central Georgia. The story of Thomas Knight sort of burst to the forefront back in 1974 when he murdered Sidney and Lillian Gans, who were, you know, well-to-do couple who lived in Bay Harbor Islands. And it was a case that really was sort of torn from, from a Hollywood script or something because uh, of how it all kind of played out. There again was Miami Herald reporter David Ovalle, who covered the execution of Thomas Knight, who by that time had changed his name to Ascari Abdullah Muhammad. All of Knight's murders predated the Reagan administration, and yet he sat on death row until his execution in January 2014. He was given a state-administered lethal injection for the October 1980 stabbing death of a correctional officer inside Florida State Prison in Rayford. But his first instance of homicidal behavior occurred 44 years ago this week. Knight was the first sent to death row in 1976 after being convicted for the murders of Sidney and Lillian Gans. The former was the founder of Sidney Bag and Paper in Northwest Dade County, now known as Miami-Dade County. He was a philanthropist, and months before his murder, he received a medal for his aid to Israel. Knight was employed by Sidney Gans as a mechanic, and on the morning of July 17, 1994, he decided to kidnap his boss at Rifle Point. Armed with a 30 caliber carbine rifle, Knight forced Sidney to drive to his Bay Harbor Islands home and lure out his wife, Lillian. Knight forced both of them in the car and ordered them to drive to City National Bank of Miami to withdraw $50,000. The 64-year-old Sidney entered the bank, at which time he notified bank employees that he and his wife had been taken hostage. Miami police and the FBI sprang into action and came up with a plan to thwart the kidnapping and capture Knight. Sidney, meanwhile, had insisted to the FBI that he pay Knight. He didn't want anything to happen to his wife. While all of it was happening inside the bank, 60-year-old Lillian drove around downtown Miami with Knight in the car, pointing the rifle at her. Law enforcement did not know that Knight worked for Sidney Gans. Had agents known that, the FBI would later admit they would have changed their entire strategy. Knight was convinced that Sidney and Lillian would recognize him. He was not about to let them walk away, only to finger them later. He intended to kill them all along. The FBI let Sidney get back into the car with Knight after he left the bank. As they drove through town, the FBI and police followed them. Lillian was still behind the wheel of the Mercedes-Benz. Sidney was in the passenger seat. Knight was in the back seat. Lillian headed south on the Palmetto Expressway and then got onto an unpaved road near Richmond Heights. Today, it's a well-populated area surrounded by toll roads. But back then, Richmond Heights was far more desolate. <laughs> 
Here again is David Ovalle describing how it all went down. Basically, Thomas Knight was a parolee back in the 70s, and Sidney, you know, owned a, a successful business, and he had actually hired Thomas Knight to do some work. You know, he, he was a guy who was very charitable. And um, 10 days later, Mr. Knight basically kidnapped the couple at, at gunpoint, made them go take out $50,000 from a bank, and in a sort of cinematic scene, you know, um, Thomas is holding Lillian, you know, at gunpoint inside the car, and Thomas goes into the bank, withdraws the money, but you know, alerts the alerts the tellers. The tellers call the police, the FBI, and the police are tailing the car covertly because they're trying to um, not spook Thomas Knight. But in in all the chaos, they end up getting uh, they end up losing losing track of the car for reasons no one could explain. Authorities lost track of the Mercedes. Knight ordered Lillian to pull over. The car was stopped in a weed-flooded field, where Knight shot the couple through their throats and killed them. They were still seated in the car when they were shot. The pair was one week away from setting sail for a European vacation. Four more hours went by before Metro-Dade police finally caught up to Knight. They used dogs and tear gas. He was found hiding in the ground, lying on top of the cash that Sidney had withdrawn from his bank account. The FBI said that Sidney Gans told them that he had never before seen the goateed man who had abducted him. Regardless of whether that was true, the FBI publicly admitted to making mistakes, none bigger than losing track of the car. The Gans family never seemed to forgive the agents who botched the arrest. That was, for the Gans family, was always a very, a very um, contentious part of the case because they really believed that the FBI botched this case. And the FBI pretty much admitted as much um, because they had the car, they, um, they were following the car, they lost track of the car. You know, there was a lot of confusion. It was a fast-moving situation. You know, it's basically a hostage situation. So there's always, in hostage situations, in any hostage situations, um, let alone in a moving vehicle, it's always a, a tricky balance as to when do we strike, when do we, you know, when do we try to move in because we don't want to get any of the hostages killed. But I think the, the losing of the vehicle is ultimately what, what upset the family the most. You know, he was able to get out, to get them in the woods, get them to a place where he was able to execute them, you know, point blank, and then hide. So, you know, I think if they hadn't lost the car, they might have had a better chance of saving them. And that was always a sore point for the family, even up until, um, you know, Knight was uh, executed decades later. The scene where the FBI searched was as tension-filled as it was chaotic. A newspaper photographer was snapping photos of Chuck Gans, the grown son of the murdered couple. Chuck became so enraged that he chased down the photographer and forced him to the ground. Police didn't intervene. The two apparently smoothed things over, but the photographer walked away with a cut hand and bruised leg. After the news broke about the murders, a couple of Knight's supervisors at the paper bag company were interviewed. One of them said Knight was a serious worker and never seemed to give anyone any trouble. The other supervisor also praised Knight's work ethic, but mentioned that Knight had one particular quirk. Knight loved martial arts, 
and he liked to spontaneously kick and punch objects. He wound up breaking several boxes and crates at his work site through repeated karate-style kicks. The U.S. Supreme Court would not reinstate the death penalty until 1976. But after learning about the murders of Sidney and Lillian Gans, Florida Attorney General Robert Shevin, who personally knew Sidney Gans, urged the high court to bring back capital punishment. He said the Ganses were, quote, slaughtered cruelly and inhumanely by someone out for a fast buck. Knight wasn't jailed for long. Almost two months to the day he was captured, he and 20 other inmates busted out of the Dade County Jail. Knight was reportedly the ringleader of the escape. The Miami Herald said the escapees punctured a large hole in the wall and literally leaped to freedom. Knight remained a free man for 101 days. During his last stint outside a jail or prison, he robbed a liquor store operator in Crisp County, Georgia. The victim in that robbery was killed. Authorities believed Knight was involved in some other robberies, too. The FBI was desperate to catch him. That fall, the Bureau added him to its top ten most wanted list. Knight was a fugitive for a while. He was he was on the lam for over a hundred days, and he was holed up in a uh, like in a shack. Yeah, I mean it was it was a crazy story. That shack was located in New Smyrna Beach, about twenty miles south of Daytona. The Daytona Beach News Journal archives did not contain a story about Knight's capture, likely because the media-unfriendly FBI led the raid. But UPI did publish a short story about it. A police officer from an agency UPI did not identify, but likely a new Smyrna Beach police officer, spotted Knight in a pool hall on December 29, 1974. He thought he recognized him, so he checked some fugitive photographs and came upon Knight's mugshot. He contacted the FBI. About 15 agents and 8 police officers set up a stakeout around what was described as a small tenement house. After a couple days, the authorities banged on the door. There was no answer. They forced their way inside. Knight had jammed a dresser against the door. The apartment was small, so when the FBI and police forced open the door, the dresser toppled over and landed on top of Knight, who was incapacitated and unable to reach for the sawed-off shotgun or either of the two handguns he had with him in that apartment. En route to the jail, the suspect refused to admit who he was. But when it came time to sign a fingerprint card, he signed it, Thomas Knight. Knight finally stood trial in April 1976. Reports indicated that he was an unruly defendant. Jurors voted in favor of death. He became one of the first death row inmates sent to Florida State Prison in Rayford after the death penalty was reinstated. He wound up being on death row longer than just about everyone who has ever passed through there. Knight, who converted to Islam and changed his name not long after he was sent to prison, was never a model inmate. On October 12, 1980, Knight used a homemade knife 
and stabbed and killed Richard Jim Burke as the corrections officer escorted him to the shower. And the reason was the prison wouldn't let Knight see his mother, um, that his mother was supposed to be making her first visit to go up and see him. So he got so pissed off that he took it off. He took it out on, on this corrections officer. So it was a, a supremely tragic case for the officer over some just doing his job. It seemed in 1981 that Knight was on the fast track to the electric chair. Governor Bob Graham signed his death warrant, but a federal judge stayed the execution because there were more appeals to be filed. Knight reportedly told the prison superintendent at the time, quote, How can you execute me when I haven't even had my trial yet about killing the guard? The superintendent was dumbfounded. But a year or so later... Knight would get tried for killing Burke. In October 1982, Knight was found guilty of that killing. In January 1983, he would be sentenced to death for a second time. He would never be tried in Georgia for the killing of the liquor store operator, but Knight would later confess to it in writing. In December 1988, a federal appeals court in Atlanta ruled that Knight was entitled to a new sentencing hearing. Knight, the court ruled, was unjustly denied the opportunity to present some character witnesses and background evidence in his favor to the jury. Chuck Gans, the man who got into a tussle with a photographer the day he found out his parents were murdered, told the Miami Herald after that ruling 30 years ago that Knight should not have been living and breathing. He thought it was unbelievable that he was getting a new hearing. He told the Herald, quote, They should have killed this guy ten years ago. They might as well not have the death penalty. Knight would not get his new hearing until January 1996, more than 21 years after he killed Sidney and Lillian Gans. By then, he had outlasted 34 other killers who were electrocuted. At that time, the state was still using the chair, commonly known as Old Sparky, to execute its condemned killers. Knight was 23 when he killed the Ganses. In early 1996, he was 44. By that time, Knight had built a reputation as being temperamental and violent. The courthouse that held Knight's resentencing saw some heavy security. The defendant was escorted by senior correction supervisors. He was shackled at the waist at all times and handcuffed. Hydraulic braces were outfitted for his legs. They were designed to lock on him in case he tried to leap. There was even talk about bolting the defense table to the floor. Knight was known to flip tables whenever things didn't go his way. While in prison... Knight was responsible for killing someone, starting a riot, threatening other guards, and refusing to follow orders. A prison investigator told the Herald that after Knight killed Burke, he showed not even a trace of remorse. Soon thereafter, he was already bugging prison officials about when he was going to eat again. Knight wound up transferred to a different wing of the prison. He spent a total of nine years in solitary confinement, unable to see or talk to any other inmates. His return to a Miami courtroom would be a short one. 
Knight didn't even wait until after jury selection to start misbehaving. He called the judge Satan and a snake. He turned off potential jurors. He enraged one of his defense attorneys so much, he actually told his client to shut up, and he said it loud enough for everyone in the courtroom to hear. He wound up getting kicked out of his own trial. He wasn't allowed back until the jurors finished deliberations. A week or so after the hearing started, while in the Miami jail, Knight faked a suicide attempt. He wrapped a bedsheet around his neck and waited until a jail officer entered the wing before letting his body slide down the cell bars. Authorities later said Knight wrapped the sheet in a manner that never would have killed him. On February 8, 1996, jurors voted to recommend death for Knight. The judge upheld the recommendation during a hearing 12 days later. By February 2013, only two inmates had been on death row longer than Knight, who by that time was 61 years old. That same month, a Miami federal judge tossed out Knight's death sentence for the Gans murders. But seven months later, a federal appeals court reversed the lower court judge's decision and restored Knight's original sentence. By then, the system decided it was time to get serious about executing Knight. Governor Rick Scott, in October of that year, signed the death warrant. Knight's execution was scheduled for December 3, 2013. Then came another development. Only this time, it was a logistical issue. It had to do with the lethal drugs to be used for the execution. Here is a clip from West Palm Beach News Station, WPTV. A new lethal injection drug will now be used in executions in Florida. A Bradford County Circuit judge ruled the new drug does prevent pain when it's administered to condemned inmates. The judge made this ruling after a two-day hearing ordered by the Florida Supreme Court. This after Thomas Knight's lawyers challenged the drug for a death row inmate. Knight was scheduled to be executed December 3rd, and now he'll be executed on the 27th. That December 27th date was actually changed once more to January 7th, 2014. By the time he was finally executed, Knight was 62 years old and was the third longest serving inmate on Florida's death row. He was executed not for the Gans murders, but for the Burke murder. And Burke's two daughters witnessed the execution. The surviving relatives of the Ganses, a daughter and grandson, declined to attend. They thought it would be too emotionally draining. But the couple's grandson, Judd Shapiro, was quoted in Ovalle's Herald story about the execution. Shapiro said, quote, It doesn't bring my grandparents back, but it's over. At least in some sense, it allows us to move forward. He continued to say, quote, I'd like to hope in some fashion this helps other people realize that sooner or later the right thing does happen. But it shouldn't take this long. It shouldn't take 40 years. Ovalle's story about Knight's last full day included what the inmate ate for his pre-execution dinner. It was a kind of dinner that a child would wish for. 
This is what Ovalle wrote. Thomas Knight's final meal, unlike his life, was mostly sweet. Portions of sweet potato pie, coconut cake, banana nut bread, vanilla ice cream, strawberry and butter pecan ice cream, and Fritos corn chips, all washed down by a quarter of a bottle of Sprite. After all those years of violence, intimidation, and unruly behavior, Thomas Knight didn't go out hard. He went out soft. He had nothing to say. He showed no fight. That wasn't lost on those who waited so long for justice to be served. Thomas Knight, you know, the irony was was that throughout his history in the legal system, Thomas Knight was always a brash and unrepentant killer. You know, he was someone who reveled in his notoriety. He was someone that was considered a... Uh, a problem inmate. He was someone who was considered a very, very evil killer. Um, you know, after all of after all of that, um, you know, when he was executed uh, in January of 2014, um, even uh, one of the detectives who worked on this case said he went out like a lamb. He didn't want to say anything. He didn't, uh, you know, show any remorse. He didn't, uh, you know, um, apologize for the mayhem that he caused over three decades. So um, it was sort of a, an anticlimactic end to a, a very, very uh, cruel and savage life. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will discuss the troubled life of Mark Assay the first white man executed in Florida for killing a black man. He was executed 11 months ago. My special guest for that segment will be Florida Times Union investigative reporter Eileen Kelly. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.